0: Hello, and welcome back to the Grace Downtown podcast. Earlier this week, about 40 or 50 past and present members of the Grace Downtown Discipleship Catalyst welcomed Dr. Randy Newman, who delivered an engaging talk on sharing and explaining your faith. Randy Newman's the Senior Teaching Fellow for Apologetics and Evangelism at the C.S. Lewis Institute as well as the head of Connection Points, a ministry that works to equip churches to share their faith coherently. Before that, he spent 30 years on staff with Campus Crusade for Christ. He's also the author of three really great books. The first is Questioning Evangelism, Engaging People's Hearts the Way Jesus Did. The second is called Corner Conversations, Engaging Dialogues About God and Life. And the third, is called Bringing the Gospel Home, Witnessing to Family Members, Close Friends, and Others Who Know You Well. I'll be reconnecting with my family and old friends for Thanksgiving next week, and I know a lot of you probably will be too, so we figured that this talk would be a timely one to share on the podcast. I'll be back at the end with some follow-up notes, but for now, I'll get out of your way and let you enjoy the talk. And now... Here's Randy.
1: I need to um, acknowledge right from the start, I, I just I think it's the Lord's humor, um, irony, or whatever, that I do so much speaking about evangelism, because I am not an evangelist. I am an, a reluctant, no, that's even too positive. I'm an evangelistic chicken. Um, and so now if some of you want to leave, uh, because this isn't being done by a, a, an evangelism expert, It's too late, Glenn just locked the door. Um, But uh, I'm I'm actually hoping that that's encouraging to you. Um, A non-expert can perhaps help more than an expert can. I just, I know for the first 10 years that I was with Campus Crusade, we always used to have speakers come in who were evangelists and for them it was easy and every day and natural and unavoidable. And I, I sat there thinking, none of those words work for me. Um, and they would talk about how they had to talk to everybody that they met and they, they they had to share the gospel. And I remember one guy up at our staff conference, he had you know, one of these looks and he says, I cannot even sleep at night unless I have witnessed to one person that day. And I remember thinking, I'm sleeping just fine. <laughs> um, Everybody that got up to speak at our staff conferences always witnessed on airplanes. Apparently, that is the place where it's mandatory, high up, close to heaven. I don't know. And and I I would hear all these speakers say, um, I always prayed for the person who's going to sit next to me. And I thought, I always prayed for an empty seat.
0: (laughs) What is wrong?
1: Um, So I just think it's... um, Ironic at best that that the Lord uses me to encourage people in this area. That, uh, my guess is the vast, vast, vast majority of Christians feel very frustrated, struggling, disappointed. How how do we make this work? uh, I, I now work with the C.S. Lewis Institute, which means I always have to quote C.S. Lewis at least once in every presentation. No, I'm just kidding. But um, Lewis uh, in the, his his book called Reflections on the Psalms said that he was not a Hebrew expert and perhaps that's the reason he could help more because he was a fellow student. And he said the fellow student can help more than the expert because he knows less. Um, so I'm hoping that my struggles will be something to help you. Um, I, I could see by some of your faces, though, that some of you are disappointed, so let me just make it worse. Um, just, to, just two weeks ago, I, I was in Los Angeles, um, I'd been given the opportunity to teach some seminary classes, so I was at Talbot Seminary. And uh, I was invited to come out and teach a class, a weekend seminar for master's level seminary students, future pastors in evangelism. The flight was delayed three hours. It it, it it had me arrive in Los Angeles in the middle of rush hour. I deliberately had arranged the the flight so that I wouldn't have to fight traffic, but no, I get there. And then I get to the rental car place and the line is really long, so I plugged in my magic number that was supposed to get me to the front of the line because I'm a plus something or other. It didn't work. And so I waited, I waited, and I waited, and I waited, and I finally get up, and the guy's showing me the car, and um, and I'm just, I'm tired, I'm cranky, I didn't sleep well the night before. And he says, oh, so what brings you to Los Angeles? And My first thought was, a plane, but I didn't say that. Um, what I said was, well, I'm actually here teaching a class. He says, oh, what class? I thought, great, a witnessing opportunity. <laughs> He I said, "Well, it's actually at a Christian school. I'm I'm teaching a class about how Christians can interact with people of other faiths and other beliefs." He goes, "Oh, you should have me come teach your class." I thought, maybe I should. Um, well, uh, Why is that? He said, I'm from Israel, I'm Jewish, and you know in Israel we have all sorts of different religions all right on top of each other. I thought, great, not only is this evangelism, this is Jewish evangelism. I, I come from a Jewish background, I do seminars on Jewish evangelism. I, I looked up to heaven and I thought, "You're, you're, you're you, I don't have time to witness to you, I have to go teach a class on evangelism. I thought that would have gotten a better laugh, okay. <laughs> Let's pray again. No. Um, so uh, I, I'm a reluctant evangelist, and I'm hoping that my, um, uh, my struggles might be encouraging to you. By the way, the, the, he and I did have a nice conversation, but he only had a few minutes. But we exchanged email addresses, and we've had a few things back and forth. So who knows? Um, I'm going back for the second part of the class in a few weeks, and I'm praying that he'll be my uh, enterprise rent-a-car guy. Um, so maybe I should find out who I'm talking to. How many of you would say that your primary spiritual gift is the gift of evangelism? Do we have any evangelists? Mm, OK, this should be good. How many of you think evangelism is easy, natural, every day? Good, good, good. OK, right. Yeah, the, those kind of people don't come to these seminars, do they? They're out on the street witnessing to someone. Hey, I'll be right there. I got, he's really close. So um, all right. Um, let me, be, let, let me try to make it more difficult before we try to tackle it. Not only are we non-evangelists, but I'm sure you know that our world has moved rather dramatically away from a biblical worldview so that more and more the people that we're talking to share less and less in common with us. Here's how I like to illustrate it. When uh, my oldest son was in high school, he came home one day And he said, I have this theory. I I came up with it when I was in the middle of Western Civ class. I I have this theory that explains everything, which is the way my son talks. It explains history, uh, military strategy, uh, geography, everything. This This is the theory that explains it all. It's called the plug theory. The plug theory says every country has somewhere near its geographic center a plug that holds it up. If somehow somebody could pull the plug, the country would sink. Good. Someone's laughing. Uh, some of you are taking this way too seriously. Sometimes I do this and people write, they, they write it down. But, and then after a few minutes, they're they're looking. Into the room. It's a joke. It's a joke. But, but I, I'm not so sure Dan thought it was a joke. But anyway, but, so every country's absolute top highest priority was protecting its plug. In fact, you had to keep this, the location of the plug a secret. A secret. Um, Dan believes ours is somewhere in the middle of Kansas, uh, probably within the confines of the military base at Fort Leavenworth, which is why at the Penitentiary, Leavenworth Penitentiary, security is so tight because it's so close to the plug. he believes Switzerland's plug is probably the most secure in all the world, high atop the Swiss Alps, probably under 10 feet of ice and snow, which is why Switzerland has been neutral in so many wars. Because what do they care? No one's going to pull their plug. Um, several years ago, Dan went to Australia, and he learned about Uluru. You know about Uluru, the big rock in the middle of Australia, sometimes called Ayers Rock. Any of you know this? I mean, it's this mammoth rock that's as big as a mountain. And he says, aha. And it's right smack in the very middle of the, of the continent and the country. And he See, see, Australia's plug is underneath Uluru, which is why Australians always say, no worries, because they have no worries. No one's going to pull their plug. Some of you are saying, why did I come to this seminar? Um, um, no, here's a, so, okay, you get the idea about this plug theory. Oh, by the way, uh, Atlantis didn't guard its plug very well. Okay, so, um, why am I saying this? Um Uh, none of you took this all that seriously and none of you believed it and if by some reason I started talking as if I really believed it and I started giving you reasons why you should you would not be more likely to believe me you'd be more likely to feel sorry for me I think that's similar to what our world is today more and more people are about as likely to believe the gospel as they are to believe the plug theory and so Uh, we start talking about reasons why we believe it and evidences and archaeological discoveries and they're just thinking, you probably think there's a plug in the middle of Kansas. And and so the task of evangelism today has become more elongated because we need to do more prep work. We need to do more pre-evangelism or in more likely many cases pre-pre-pre-evangelism. We need to think about this longer strategy so that when people are in a place ready to believe, we can can see where they are, or if they're not, we can see what needs to happen. Now, let me quickly say, um, evangelism is this supernatural process. It's absolutely impossible for anybody to get saved unless God does a miracle, right? You're at a Presbyterian church. Uh, I am at a Presbyterian church. We believe that unless God draws people miraculously, there's not a chance. But God does draw people. And so evangelism is this absolutely astounding weaving together of human activity, asking questions, listening, dialoguing, providing information, pointing to different things, and also God drawing people in absolutely supernatural ways. Um, Let me encourage you on the supernatural front. Um, I did a research project not too long ago to find out how is it that people come to faith. I interviewed 40 college students who had become Christians within the last two years. Each interview was 45 minutes to an hour long and then I uh, transcribed it and uh, processed and I heard some absolutely wonderful stories but quite a few crazy ones. Ones that would be so unlikely, so unpredictable. And it convinced me that when we get involved in evangelism, we just, we just don't know what else is going on in that person's life. We know our relationship, our interaction with them. But there's all sorts of other dynamics going on at the same time. For example, one young woman I interviewed, was a junior in college. Um, I, I, I got the names of these uh, recent converts from campus ministers, so I had a very high percentage of people who really were indeed converts. I mean there were a few that uh, maybe not, but but the, the, these were people who had shown that they were sticking with it and really made real uh, conversion experience decisions. So this one woman uh, starts her interview with me saying, well, I grew up in a family with no religion at all. My dad was an atheist. He married um, a woman who was an atheist. My dad's father was a pastor. But he wanted nothing to do with his father's religion and he walked away from Christianity when he was in college He became an atheist. So my mom and my dad are atheists and they raised us in an atheist home No religion whatsoever. She said I, I, I can't remember ever going to church ever my whole entire life I think one time when I was in kindergarten I went because my friend was singing in the choir. I don't I don't really know but anyway So I came away to college in my freshman year no religion nothing whatsoever. I wasn't interested I was an atheist all my friends were atheists atheists, lots of partying, lots of, you know, the typical college freshman year. I went home at the end of my freshman year and my dad, and my, my parents said we were going to take a family vacation. My sister had just graduated from high school. The four of us were going to go to London for a two-week vacation, probably our last chance for a big family vacation. Okay, so she said, so so I decided to pack my Bible. I said, wait, 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 hold, hold, wait, you're you what? My Bible. I decided to bring my Bible on vacation. And and I'm trying to be a professional researcher or something. I said, why? And uh, well, I don't know. I said, where did you get a Bible? She goes, I don't, I don't know. It's kind of weird. I I just, I don't, I, I don't know. And then she says, and and by the way, it was one of those big fat ones. You know, it was a fat Bible. And so, and my dad said we had to pack light because we had to pack small suitcases. So I gave up a lot of room in my suitcase for this big fat Bible. And I'm sitting here thinking, this is crazy. What? What? Oh, okay, all right, great. So, so you brought your big fat Bible on vacation, yes. All right, did you read it? She said, oh yeah, every day. Why? I, I, at, <laughs> at some point I had to stop, just, just, just write the, you know, okay. Um, uh, all right, so you read it every day. What did you read? Well, I read Matthew, I read Mark, I read Romans. I really liked that one. I read a lot of the Psalms, they were... What did you think? I, I loved it. Okay, so then what? Well, then I came back to college and I thought, I've got to find some people who believe the Bible. And I saw some sign-up about a Christian group that was having a meeting. I figured they probably believe the Bible. And so I went to the meeting and the guy who was the speaker was a Young Life staff guy who did a talk on four reasons why you should believe the Bible. And I thought, this is just the greatest stuff in the world, she she said. So I went home, and I stalked him on Facebook. (laughs) I found him, and I I asked to be his friend. And and at first he said, who are you, which probably makes sense. And and I told him who I, whatever. And so he set up an appointment for me with a female staff person with Young Life, and they started doing a one-on-one Bible study, and she became a Christian three months later. So at the end of every interview, I said to people, okay, uh, thank you very much, It's very good, all right. What, what would you say are the three most important factors in your story? What, what would you say were the three most important things? So she said, well, well, definitely um, that, uh, that vacation where I took my Bible and definitely that first Young Life meeting where that guy did that talk. And I guess if I had to say a third thing, it would be my grandfather. So, wait, 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 wait. you hardly mentioned anything about your grandfather. You told me he was a pastor. Um, Now, why? Did, Did you have conversations with your grandfather? No, my dad wouldn't let us have conversations about God with my grandfather. Okay, well, then why would you say that he was one of the top three factors in your story? She said, I don't really know, but I just think that just him being there or something had some kind of an effect. isn't that wild? Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that wonderful? I I want to meet this grandfather sometime. I want to say, way to go, Grandpa. He's probably praying his knees off for his granddaughters, right? So we just don't know all of the story that's going on when we um, sit next to the person on an airplane, or they're the person renting you the car, or they have the desk next to you at work, or they move into the apartment next door, or... So um, so we're not evangelists, our world is moving away from this, but God does the impossible. Um, whenever I speak about evangelism, I think the, the biggest thing that I tend to emphasize is um, the importance of asking good questions and listening well. We'll talk about listening after a break. We will take a break, by the way. Um, we're here till midnight, right? Oh, oh. No, Um, no. Um, But I want to talk about questions. Uh, It seems to me that knowing how to ask good questions and knowing how to answer questions with questions to engage people in the answering process may be one of the most important skills we can develop. Usually, we think, "Okay, I just need to know what all the questions people could possibly ask and then what are the answers, and when they ask this one, I give the appropriate answer. And there is a very important place for that, so I hope that you are doing some of that kind of prep. I hope you read books by apologists and people who give good answers to those questions. Um, I often say to people, I think there are at least three skills involved in evangelism. One is the skill of declaring the gospel. Glenn mentioned that at the beginning. We, we all need to be able to declare the gospel clearly, concisely. If uh, if somebody were to say, okay, just tell me, what," it, in a nutshell, what do you believe? Could you answer them? Could you tell them the gospel in three or four minutes? Um, I'm very, very grateful for my experience with Campus Crusade. I know many organizations have done a great job of equipping people of Here is the gospel. And so we need to be very good at that. We need to know it so well that we can articulate it in a whole variety of different settings. And by the way, I'm very concerned about the fact that there were some people saying, our world is changing so much, we need to change our message. No, we don't. We don't need to change our message. We may need to change the way we introduce it and the way we explain it. And the process probably needs adapting exactly the same way that Paul preached differently in a synagogue in Acts 13 than he did to a secular group of philosophers in Athens in Acts 17 and differently to a group of kind of religious pagans in Acts 14 and Jesus spoke differently to Nicodemus than he did to the woman at the well, etc. But the message does not change, it can't change. So declaring the gospel is one of those very very important skills. The the second one is defending the gospel or defending why we believe the gospel. And again great, there's great apologetic material available to us today. But the skill that I try to emphasize is about dialoguing the gospel. So all three with D in case you like uh, memorizing. Uh, Declaring the gospel, defending it, dialoguing. How do we dialogue it? And again, I think the key or one of the important keys of dialoguing is asking good questions and responding to questions with questions. I know that's counterintuitive. Um, As I said, we tend to think of, okay, here are the questions, now give this answer. But I did a study of how Jesus answered people's questions, and I found that more than half the time he didn't answer them, (laughs) at least not right away. The most frequent non-answer was a question. People said, um, is it lawful for us to heal on the Sabbath? He said, well, if you had an animal that fell into the ditch, wouldn't you pull it out? Or they said, um, should we pay taxes to Caesar? He said, let me see a coin. Whose face is on the coin? Uh, uh, Is it okay for us to get a divorce? What did Moses write? He, he asked, he answered questions with questions to engage people in the answering process. So that by the time he did give an answer, they were already there or most of the way there. The, the most dramatic, I think, um, display of this is in Mark chapter 10, when uh, a man comes up to Jesus and says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Remember this story, right? I, I often uh, think, w- what a perfect setup for a gospel presentation, right? I often think that, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? The disciples are in the background saying, take out the booklet. Um, show them the four-point outline. Come on. Um, and then you remember what Jesus said? Why do you call me good? He answered a question with a question. Now can't you see the disciples? He blew it. <laughs> what kind of an answer is that? Why do you call me good? And then then he says, no one is good except God alone. Is this anti-evangelism? Is this he's trying to chase the guy away? But, But you read the rest of the dialogue. You know what happens. The guy comes to see that his motivation for asking that initial question wasn't really good motivation. When he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He already thought he had done it. He already thought he was good, right? When Jesus quoted some of the commandments, what did the guy say? I've, all, I've kept all these things since I was a youth. And, and we read that and we want to say, what a jerk. What a, what a self-righteous, self-absorbed. I've kept, I've never broken any of these things. Mark records Jesus looked at the man and loved him. And he loved him enough to ask a question that could get him unglued from his own self-satisfaction or his self-righteousness or his self-salvation system. Because he showed him that at his heart he really hadn't obeyed those things. Now the text tells us that the man went away sad. But it does seem to me that answering a question or learning how to dialogue and get these kind of things going back and forth, is more helpful than just delivering the right answer. How am I doing so far? Is this making sense? Um, Let me pause to see if you have any questions so far. We'll do a much longer uh, Q&A time but I just want to see, is this connecting so far? Um, uh, Oftentimes when I do this uh, I also look at um, Acts 17, the first part of Acts 17 where Paul dialogues in a synagogue Um, but I I think I'm going to skip that to kind of move to a couple of uh, examples of what this can look like and sound like in your own conversations and then um, well we'll see how we'll do and then we'll take a break do some Q&A and I might even do some listening exercises with you depending on how much time we have Um, let me try to give an idea of what this could sound like um, I think the way I'll do this is I'll, I'll state a, a a a point to remember and then a question to ask and I think we can do four of these. So the first point to remember is that in our world today there are a lot of people who are just never thinking about spiritual things at all. In fact they, they may not really be thinking all that deeply about anything. I, I hope this I, I, don't, I don't mean this to be insulting but w- w- our contemporary world likes to be entertained, but not stimulated for thinking a lot, especially about spiritual things. So people say things that make you wonder if they're really thinking all that clearly. I know, you gotta be, I gotta be really careful with this. So here, I'll give you an example. People sometimes say, you know, doesn't matter what you believe as long as it works for you. Right? You've heard something like this. Doesn't matter what you believe, as long as you're happy. Well, that's that's not thinking very well. But that's not a good thing to say. Don't say that's not thinking very well, or that's stupid. No, don't do that. Don't say that. Um, in fact, what I have he- I've overheard conversations where someone says something like that, and then the Christian just thinks, Oh, this this is too good, and then pounce and No, that's ridiculous. No, that's the stupidest thing in the world. Yeah. Um, uh, it may be stupid and ridiculous, but that's probably not a good, effective way of engaging people. Um, but by the way, by the way, that, that's a very important distinction. I'm interrupting myself. I know, but we we need to ask what's the right answer, or what does the Bible say about that? But we also need to say what would be the way to to answer that or respond to that. There are different categories. Sometimes we think if we just deliver doctrine at people, that will work. Um, That hasn't been my experience of being very effective. So if someone says, well, you can believe anything you want as long as it works for you, I think it's better to ask a question rather than to attack. And the question could be as simple as, really, that's it, that's the whole thing. (laughs) Do you really think so? Do you really believe that? <laughs> this might be a question that needs practice, by the way, in front of a mirror, all by yourself. Because really is probably not the way to deliver that one word. Um, but, but what you're trying to do is you're trying to wake them up from non-thinkingness. I know that's not a real word. But um, well, do you really think so? Do you, re- do, you really, do you really think it's OK to believe anything? Um, horribly, in our world today, we don't have to go very far to come up with examples of you don't really think that's okay, do you? Um, so, uh, I used. To, I guess sometimes I do. Oh, quite a while ago there was a, a religious cult out in California that believed that when a certain comet went by that they should all kill themselves. Do you remember this story? Have you heard of this? And they did. I don't know how many of them, but there was sort of a mass suicide when a certain comet went by. And so I tell that story sometimes. I say, now, you don't think that's okay, do you? Or you don't think it's okay for people to to crash planes into buildings in the name of religion, do you? Um, and so it, it, the, the conversation can become uncomfortable, but it, what you're trying to do is you're trying to take it from a cliché, non-thinking mindless state to wait a minute let's really talk about this. So I think learning how to say do you really think so or do you really believe that is an important question to ask. Okay second one similar to this um, some things just can't be true. People say things that, that it, this is better uh, than non-thinking, but they're not necessarily thinking well, or they're saying something that's self-contradictory, or they're saying something that just cannot line up to reality. The, the most classic one is, well, I think all religions are basically the same. People say that, right? I think all religions are basically the same. They, they agree on the core stuff. They just disagree on little stuff on the externals like which day to worship on. Well, that's just not true. That's that's not even close to true. You don't need a degree in comparative religions. But, but when people say that, what they need is someone to ask them a question to help them see that that belief doesn't work. So if people say, I think all religions are basically the same, I know some of you have charts, right? Do you have, do you, you know these charts or the different religions and the different what they say about God, what they say about people, and you want to pull this out of your pocket and show them all the contradictions, but I don't recommend it. Um, it it's good to have those charts. Do any of you know what I'm talking about? Do some of you have these charts? Okay, good Good charts, bad witnessing tool, alright? So I think what's better is to ask a question, and this question I think can apply to a lot of different things, but it's, well, can you explain that to me? Um, I, I I don't see it. Could you explain how Buddhism and Judaism are the same? I don't, I don't see how they are. For many people, they've just never thought about this, or if they have, they haven't thought very deeply. And so what, you, what you're asking them to do is to defend their faith, in a sense, that is indefensible. Now, by the way, um, Very often we as Christians accept being on a defensive posture. What I'm suggesting here is that we put them on the defensive. And you need to do this very, very gently and carefully and prayerfully. Lord, I'm not trying to kill the person. Would you help me to love them? Would you help me to ask this question in a way that doesn't seem like an attack? I'm really trying to help them see that the worldview they've accepted or constructed really can't work. And it's very painful for them, and it may be painful for you. Have any of you read any of Francis Schaeffer's writings? Do any of you know this at all? Um, uh, He uh, was really a missionary and a pastor in Europe in the 1960s, I guess, 1960s and 70s and came up with a lot of thinking about evangelism that has affected my thinking and influenced quite a few uh, contemporary writers about evangelism. Schaefer said that when you're asking people these kinds of questions, it's as if you're lifting the roof off of their building, their house. People have constructed a worldview that protects them from the rainstorms and the hailstorms and the, the elements. And what we're doing is we're lifting the roof off to help them see reality, but it's very painful. And um, Schaefer said we need to do this with love. We need to do it with tears. We need to lift the roof off of people's worldviews so that they see that doesn't work. By the way, I've heard quite a few people quote that, misquote Schaefer, and they say we need to cave the roof in on people. We need to crash their roof in. And I go, no, 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 that's not what Schaefer said. We Need to lift the roof off. It's a very different image, I'm sure you see. So we need to ask people, well, can, can you explain that to me? I just don't see it. Um, how are we doing? Is this working? Is this, I, I can't, okay. Um, third, this one's the most difficult. The third principle is some questions aren't real. They're not sincere, they're not real questions to be answered. Sometimes they're attacks, they're sarcastic comments about what idiots we are for believing is. Are you telling me that everybody who disagrees with your one little club is going to go to hell? Are you telling me you're the only ones getting in? Can you tell by the tone of voice there that's not a real question? Um, You need to uh, realize Jesus didn't always answer people's questions, so there are times not to answer. By the way, um, study those two Proverbs that are back to back in Proverbs 26, I think it is, verses 4 and 5. Um, Do not answer a fool according to his folly or you will be like him yourself. Answer a fool as his folly deserves, lest he be wise in his own eyes. Jesus modeled this for us when people came to him at the, toward the end of the Gospels where he's teaching in the temple and um, um, people come to him and they say, by whose authority are you doing this? Do you remember this? And he says, well let me ask you a question. (laughs) There he goes, he's answering a question with a question. Um, John's baptism was it from heaven or from men you remember this you know and they go "Uh, uh, give us a minute and they had a private little chat and they go well if we say it was from heaven he's going to say well then why didn't you believe John but if we say it was just just from people men he's just a man we'll have a riot that was a paraphrase I know but you remember this they come back and they say we don't know and Jesus said then neither will I answer your question there are times when people's questions are not sincere, and we need to recognize it as such. And I wish I had a perfect question to ask. You know, here's, here's the memorizable question for when it's not a, I don't have it. See, the first one was memorizable. Is that a word? Um, easily, easy to remember. Really? Uh, difficult to deliver but easy to remember. The second question is can you explain that to me? This one I, I don't have a standard question but you've got to recognize when someone's attacking you or when they're insulting you or when they're saying you're an idiot, aren't you? And if you give a straightforward answer you will leave him wise in his own eyes. So for years in campus ministry, I would get hit with that question. Are you telling me that yours is the only group that's going to go to heaven? And I would answer with this theologically accurate answer. John 14, 6, Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. It's the only way, here's reasons, and it never worked. Because the starting point wasn't a real question. Sometimes I say to people, is that a real question? By the way, I realize looking at your faces, I I need to uh, remind you, I think I said at the beginning that I'm Jewish, I'm also from New York originally. So there's a New York Jew in me that just comes out. Some of you are, so you need to translate to uh, whatever, DC Gentile or whatever, whatever it is. This is why my wife does not come to hear me speak about these things. She's from Ohio. She's from a Gentile background. She's I. I just you know you scare me sometimes. But so but we're in D.C. It's a city. You know. Okay. So, um. So we need to say to people. I mean, is is that a real question? Is that a sincere question? I or I. I I feel attacked by that, I'm not so sure that, I mean, can we have a real conversation about this? Those kind of things. Um, By the way, this takes time, but, um, well here, I'll give you an example. As I said, in campus ministry, I've been asked that question a lot of times. So one time, I was at George Mason University, this was early on in the ministry there, Uh, we had a Bible study in a guy's dorm room, and every week in this dorm room he would ask us a question posed to him by his roommate, who is not there, who is an atheist. My roommate is an atheist and this week he asked me this question. So it almost seemed like every week we were answering the absent atheist's question, until one week he came with four of his atheist friends. And there were the atheists on this side of the room and the Christians on this side of the room and Randy the crusader in the middle. (laughs) And this guy sitting right here, probably as close as this chair is to where I am right now. He said, "Are you telling me that everybody who disagrees with all of you are going to go to hell?" And all the atheists started laughing and giggling. And I thought, this isn't a real question. Don't answer it. Don't do it. Don't fall for the bait. Um, and I well, and, and by the way, I, I didn't know how to handle this. And so I had done a bunch of conversations with friends of mine. What do I say? What do I? What do I say? So. I wasn't brilliant on the spot because I'm never brilliant on the spot. I do a lot of prep. I do a lot of brainstorming, what are, what are some different ways I could respond? So I had come up with some ideas if I was ever hit with this question again. And so this guy says, are you telling me that everybody disagrees with you is going to go to hell? And I said, do you believe in hell? But I, but I didn't come up with that brilliant on the spot. It was hours of, I don't know, okay, well, but it looked good, Lo- looked brilliant on the spot. So, so I probably impressed all of these crusaders, never mind, but okay, so do you believe in hell? Uh, uh, well, no, I think it's ridiculous. I said, so then why do you care? What do you mean? Why do you care who I think is going to go to a place that you think doesn't even exist? New York Jew, translate. I know you'll need to do a little adjusting on this. And he went, huh? Well, then quickly, one of his atheist friends said, "Well, I do believe in hell." Okay, good. You think anybody's there? So see, it's it's more of this. Make this back and forth. It's it's a dialogue. It's a conversation. It's it's. I hope I can use this word in in first in Acts 17 in the first five verses. It says that Paul dialogued with them according to the scriptures. And the word implies this rigorous back and forth nature of the conversation. Um, The Revised Standard Version even translates that word argued. He argued from the scriptures. Now we don't like that word because argue sounds angry or mean or uh, unloving, but it doesn't have to be. There can be a good Sanctified kind of arguing or dialogue, and that's what I was doing with this guy and his atheist friend. I said, So, do you think anybody goes to hell? Well, uh, Hitler. How about Hitler? Do you think he's in hell? Yeah, good, we agree. <laughs> uh, do you believe in heaven? Well, I guess so, okay. Do you think anybody goes there? Yeah, I guess so. All right, so who decides who goes to heaven and who goes to hell? You know what he said? He said, God. <laughs> God. He was an atheist 10 seconds ago. I was tempted to say, you can't say that answer, you can't use that one, but I didn't. I, I thought, this is great. He's, he, he went, he's a theist, or maybe an agnostic, but I don't know, I mean, no, theist. He, he, he moved two notches, not just agnostic, theist, this is good. I said, okay, so God decides who goes to heaven and who goes, who goes to hell. I said, how, how does God decide? He said, well, I guess, I don't know, I mean, probably the Ten Commandments a very common answer. And now in my mind I'm really excited because now he's an Orthodox Jew. <laughs> right? <laughs> Moving in the perfect great direction. I said okay, Ten Commandments. I, I like them. Do you have to get all ten right? Could you get in if you have nine out of ten? I mean one of them is coveting. That's kind of hard, you know. And then you know Jesus said some things about adultery and lust and, and murder and 8 out of 10, 7 out of 10, then, and, and that took probably 20 minutes, then we started having a decent conversation. Because what I had to do was dismantle their thinking that I was an idiot. To Now wait a minute, let's have a real conversation. With many of your friends, coworkers, neighbors, you might have to first Wait a minute, let's have a real conversation. And and that might be the end of that conversation, and it may not pick up again for a week or two or a month or something. Um, my dad was a very, very angry man for a very long period of time in his life because he had seen some really evil things. He fought in World War II, he saw some terrible things. For years, he was stuck on how could a good God allow so much evil and suffering. And I tried for decades, I'm not exaggerating, answering with philosophical answers and theological and whatever. And, and at some point, I realized, you know what? None of these answers are working. And then I had this painful moment of, you know what? They don't even work for me. I'm not, I'm not totally satisfied with the answer that I have. I live in my faith and my love for the Lord, even without a full answer to that question. I think Paul did too, that whole big thing there about my grace is sufficient for you. So I came back to my dad one time when he said, well, how would you, and I said, you know what, dad, I don't know. I I, I think there's things that I, I, I don't know. But the stuff that I do know about God convinces me that it's worth following him and loving him even though there's parts about him that I don't understand. That was this major change in my relationship with my dad and my dad getting un, un, unglued from this angry resistance and that started a softening for him. And he would, then we would have, he said, so you mean you don't have all of these? No, no, I'm not that smart. Actually, dad, I don't think anybody is that smart, but I'm certainly not. I think there are things that God still hasn't explained, but here's what he has explained. And I talked to him about Jesus and Jesus rising from the dead and fulfilling Jewish prophecy and all sorts of stuff. And my dad came to faith in the last decade of his life. He just just went to be the Lord seven months ago. He specifically requested that amazing grace be sung at his funeral. Isn't that wonderful? Half the room were unsaved Jewish relatives. Half the room were unsaved Gentile friends that he had met in the neighborhood. There was a, a small congregation that my mom and dad went to of Messianic Jewish believers. All ten of them, um, in a room about this size, maybe a little bit bigger. And I thought, we're all seeing "Amazing Grace." I just I thought it was just all these Jewish people. Uh, may, what what is this? Wretch, wretch. Marty thought he was a wretch. Why did I mean? <laughs> Who knows how God will use that? All right, let me do one more. So, not all questions are sincere, and you need to engage people in conversation. All right, one more. One more. Um, uh, Sometimes a gradual approach is best. We want We want it to happen faster. Uh, We we want it to all happen right now. We want to have a conversation where no matter where they are, it moves to understanding, acceptance, and fitting of a choir robe. I don't know, all in one conversation. Um, And it doesn't always go that way. And sometimes the gradual approach is better. So the way I like to illustrate it is, um, if you can imagine a line here suspended in midair with the alphabet on it. So A, down over here, all the way to Z. Actually Z, it's better if I do Z here. No, that's, no, just kidding. Z, and this is a spectrum of unbelief. Z being someone who's very, very close to believing. They, They could show up at a worship service and the preacher, the pastor could say, if you're here today and you've never, trusted in what Jesus did for you on the cross and you'd like to become a Christian today, they, they're, they're there. Z and there they go. A is the most hardened angry atheist you can imagine. And every non-believer you meet is somewhere on this scale. It used to be that a lot of our culture, people in our world, were on this side of the spectrum, maybe really far, maybe at letter T. And there's a whole lot of evangelism, train, evangelism methodologies, booklets, books that can take people from T to Z in a few pages. And if you meet someone who's at letter T, there you go. That, that, the, that booklet, that diagram is great. Um, Some of you, do you know the uh, program Evangelism Explosion? You've heard that? Anybody heard that? (laughs) See, if people haven't heard that, they go, what? Evangelism what? Sorry, I never mentioned it. There was this program, I forget the name of it, that said, that was supposed to be funny. uh, (laughs) You guys need a break, don't you? I'll I'll come back. Um, The question you should ask people is, if you were to die tonight, how sure are you that you'd go to heaven? Have you heard this? Sometimes it's elaborated, if you were to die tonight and stand before God and he were to say, why should I let you into heaven, what would you say? That's a great letter T question because it assumes they believe in God, they believe in heaven, they believe in a personal God who could ask them a question. Something they would say would make a difference. They want to go to heaven, yes. So if you, if someone's at letter T, it's a wonderful question. Much of our culture has shifted way over to this side. And so that's not a good letter D question, for example. In fact, well, If they're they're where a lot of my Jewish relatives are, which is probably negative W somewhere, I don't know. It's a terrible question. In fact, uh, there's a Jewish superstition that you don't ever say anything bad, because if you do, it'll happen. So if you start a question, if you were to die tonight, shh, quiet shut up! What is what is what is your Christians are always asking? They're so morbid. What are you are you trying to sell me a life insurance policy? Shut up! It, it is not a good letter D question. It's a great letter T question. If you get to know the person, you find out that's where they are. Wonderful. But we need a bunch of questions on this side. Like, well, I don't know, do you ever think much about spiritual stuff? It's a good letter D question. And then you have to listen carefully because they might say, oh yeah, I think about it all the time. In fact, my brother told me I should read the Bible and I've been reading it and, and... letter Z, that was my younger brother, by the way. Uh, when somebody on his college campus asked him if he ever thought about spiritual, he's been reading the Bible through on his, on his own On the other hand, my other brother, if I were to say you ever think much about spiritual things as I did once 20 years ago, I'll just, no, please, just shut up with that. Oh, okay, well, what kind of things do you like? What do you want to talk about? Uh, Let me tell one more story about this A to Z kind of thing, and then I'll see if you have questions and we'll see how we'll go from there. But um, my favorite story to tell well, I just told my favorite story about my dad coming to faith. But my second favorite, tied actually, would be my mother's story. My, my Jewish mother. So you've all heard Jewish mother jokes, right? And uh, they're all true and they're not funny. And uh, so I tried witnessing to my Jewish parents in all sorts of different ways. I sent them books. I sent them videos. I, you know the, the Jesus film? Uh, the life of Jesus from the Gospel of Luke put together by Campus Crusade. I sent my parents both the English and the Hebrew version. My parents don't speak a word of Hebrew. I just thought it would be impressive that Jesus spoke Hebrew, and it it wasn't. Nothing worked. And if I'm honest, I would say I gave up. And I think I even gave up hope. And I'm ashamed to say that I gave up praying. Um, God is more faithful than we are. And he continued to work in my mom's life. I would say my mother's worldview was somewhere about letter D. All religions are the same. Everybody goes to heaven. Um, It doesn't really matter. And so um, uh, my mom was telling me one time on the phone about a funeral that she had gone to of a man who taught in the high school that I went to. And I knew this man to be kind of like letter A, angry, sarcastic, mean-spirited atheist. And um, he died after this really terrible, horrible, long uh, illness. And he never turned around. He was a very, very angry, bitter man at the end of his life. And my mother was talking to me on the phone, and she said, Well, at least now he's in a better place. And I thought, Oh, I'm not so sure. Um, and I think I started constructing a sermon. You know, I got lots of Bible verses on my side on this one. Um, but But I had done that already. I had preached those sermons. Nothing worked. And so I experimented by asking a question. And I said, well, Mom, how do you know that? It's a very important question, by the way. How do you know that? How have you come to that? What has convinced you of that? Those kind of things. She said, how do I know what? I said, how do you know he's in a better place? And there was this very long and very uncomfortable pause. And my mother eventually said... I guess I don't know that. And I wanted to sing the hallelujah chorus because my mother budged from D to D and a half. (laughs) But that started for her of, wait a minute, maybe I don't know this stuff. Maybe I need to rethink about that. And my mother at age 70, 71, 72, started reading the New Testament. And she started sending me emails with questions. Why did Jesus say this? Why did people hate him so much? All these questions. Which, what did I do? I answered with a question. Ma, why do you think you said that? Why do you think people hated him? It really bothered her. (laughs) Just answer my question. Um, But that moved her gradually along. And uh, one day my mother sent me this email. She said, I'm beginning to think like you do, that Jesus is the Messiah. Uh uh uh, the Ma um would you say he's your all in capital's Messiah? Question mark. She wrote back, not yet. (laughs) But soon after that, my mom at age 75 came to faith, got baptized by my younger brother, the one I was telling you about before. He was a pastor in Europe. Crazy. And um, Uh, My mother is. She just had her eighty-eighth birthday. She was in the hospital not too long ago. She said this. I'm not making this up. My mother said to me on the phone, "Randy, I got to witness to one of the Jewish doctors." (laughs) (laughs) Um, So what I'm trying to say is a gradual approach may be best. Now, um, God is not bound by a uh, our timeline or a consistent timeline. My mom was at letter D for 70 plus years and budged to here, but then from there to faith was less than five years. Some people just need to get kind of unglued from anger at God, or I just don't want to think too much about this, or I'm really steeped in a hedonistic lifestyle, or whatever, and something might change the trajectory.
0: That was the end of Randy's talk, but he did follow it up with a question-and-answer session and an exercise that he wanted the audience to practice. The audio quality on the Q&A was not great because we didn't actually have a microphone in the audience, so we're working on other ways of getting that to you. We might turn it into a series of blog posts later in the year, or we might do another episode of the podcast where I explain what each question was before playing you Randy's answer. In the meantime, though, the Grace Downtown staff want to offer you one suggestion for how you can put some of what Randy just shared into practice this Thanksgiving holiday. One of our church's core values is that God's transforming grace teaches us to listen and dialogue with the people around us who don't share our experiences or who don't yet share our faith. So. As you get together with friends or family members whose life experiences are different from yours or who don't share your faith, put that core value into practice. Ask God for patience and for presence of mind before seeing your friend or family member. Then commit to spending most of your time in that conversation asking questions and listening to the answers. The questions don't have to be about faith or even anything profound. As long as you're practicing listening attentively and not doing that DC thing where you try to line up a great follow up or reply while the other person's still talking. It's okay to even take some time between when they're done talking and when you ask follow up questions, if you're using that time to think about what they told you. This ties directly into the exercise that Randy had the audience practice. So it's not coming out of nowhere and the staff is excited to try it ourselves over the holiday. In the meantime, Randy's talk was delivered as part of the Grace Downtown Discipleship Catalyst program. For more information on that program, visit gracedc.net slash downtown. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back with a new episode early next week.